The Bible reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You were living in sin and lawless ways, but in fact you were dead. You used to live as sinners when you followed the ways of this world. You served the one who rules over the spiritual forces of evil. He is the spirit who is now at work in those who don't obey God. At one time, we all lived among them. Our desires were controlled by sin. We tried to satisfy what they wanted us to do. We followed our desires and thoughts. God was angry with us like he was with everyone else. That's because of the kind of people we all were. But God loves us deeply. He is full of mercy. So he gave us new life because of what Christ has done. He gave us life even when we were dead in sin. God's grace has saved you. God raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with him in his heavenly kingdom. That's because we belong to Jesus Christ. He has done it to show the riches of his grace for all time to come. His grace can't be compared with anything else. He has shown it by being kind to us. He was kind to us because of what Christ Jesus has done. God's grace has saved you because of your faith in Christ. Your salvation doesn't come from anything you do. It's God's gift. It's not based on anything you've done. No one can brag about earning it. We are God's creation. He created us to belong to Christ Jesus. Now we can do good works. Long ago, God prepared these works for us to do. For two weeks, we're going to be um, spending some time thinking about the dance and the, the relationship between the two sides of the coin that is faith and works. And so today we are looking at faith and works. Next week we're looking at works and faith. Um, let me just pray as we begin. Our Lord and King, you who spoke creation into being, we pray that you might speak again this morning. We pray that you might stir us and wake us. And we pray that we might be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Amen. Uh, fair warning, um, this part of Paul's letter, this part of the passage, uh, opens pretty darkly. If you didn't pick that up in the reading, it starts, as for you, you were dead in your sins. That's not usually how you, you don't see that verse on many coffee mugs or um, kind of posts on Facebook or Instagram to get likes. If you post it on Instagram, you'll probably end up on the ABC uh, for all the wrong reasons. Uh, but what Paul is doing here is he is reminding the Ephesian church, this is what you once were. 
Remember who you were because it's only in remembering who you were and the state that you were in that you might truly appreciate the grace that you now have, the reality that you now are standing in. It's uh, what Paul is doing is a little bit like if you go to a jeweler and they kind of pull out kind of the black felt and then place kind of the expensive rings or the diamonds, that kind of thing. And what the black felt does is it contrasts and it shows you just how beautiful, just how excellent the, the carrots and the sparkle of the ring. And that's what Paul is doing. So if kind of this morning you're kind of feeling a little bit weary from kind of Christmas lunch kind of 16 hours ago and you're kind of then like, oh, wow, we're in a really heavy sermon so early. Bear with us. Don't switch off the stream. That is how we see the beauty of the diamonds. It's a story from the graveyard to glory. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not sick, not unwell, not, not broken, not weary, not bleeding out, but rather you were dead. You were without life. You were just following the kind of uh, the inclinations and desires of your heart kind of strolling around but cut off from a bleeding heart. You were a walking corpse. I am, um, fair warning, if you are a parent, just be aware. I was saying to my wife, Amy, I said, I'm not sure if I want to use this illustration. It's the perfect illustration because Paul is talking about how we were once the walking dead stumbling and moving about just based on whatever desires of our hearts that we found. But I was like, I don't know if there are going to be children in the, in the congregation here. I don't know whether Carol is going to get upset with me because, that's, uh, because of... Um, so bear in mind, but this is the beautiful person that Paul says you were. And we can wake up and we can put makeup on and try to pretend. We can wear a mask. We can even do good things. But Paul is saying that is who we once were. And, and the point is this, if you're just sick, if you're just unwell, that there is something you can do. You can go to the doctors. You can get medicine. You can exercise. You can open up the windows and let the sunshine in. There are things that you can do to make yourself feel better to get better. 
But Paul's point is, we were at such a state that there's nothing you could do. There's nothing I could do. See, Paul's not just saying you were dead. Notice that you get right down to kind of verse, I think it's verse 3, verse 4. He's saying, and we also were. All of us, myself included, were, were utterly helpless. We're without ability to kind of resuscitate ourselves. And, and what it means is also this. It means that you don't just need medicine. You don't just need kind of a pick-me-up. Rather, you need a new heart. This is what Paul's saying. You needed a new heart, not just some Panadol. You needed new breath. You needed resuscitation, resurrection. And, and while this seems like a kind of, a, a really kind of a downer thing to say, Here's what's freeing about it, and here's what's great about it. It means that no one is better than anyone else. It means that, that there should be no place in the church, or if the world thought this, that there should be no place for kind of big nosery and snobbery, thinking you're better than someone else, because you can't be more dead than anyone else. You can't be more dead than someone else. Yeah, I think it's the Princess Bride, right? My friend is dead, but not that dead. No, no, no. If you're sick, you can be more sick than someone or less sick than someone. But if you are dead, you're all the same. We are all the same. And we are all in need of of resurrection, of life. And what are we dead? Ephesians 2, 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That is our self-centered, self-serving kind of nature. As Luther would say, that, that our hearts are inwardly bent, inwardly directed. Kind of, if you have a problem with kind of the alignment in your car and, and the wheels, if you just take your hands off the steering wheel, they just keep going towards the centre of the road. That our hearts, you take the steering, you take your hands off the steering wheel, our hearts inwardly turn. Inwardly, they're self-serving. That's why you and I, when you see a photo, the first person you look for in a photo is yourself. And, and the measure by which you go, that's a great photo. And your wife is standing there going, that's a terrible photo. And the measure of whether it's a good photo or not is whether you look great or not. And then you post it on Facebook and your wife gets upset at you. That naturally we kind of are self-serving that's why you don't have to work hard to teach children to be selfish. You don't ha it, it doesn't, it's not laboursome to teach a child to snatch, to lie. Children so easily lie if they think they're going to get into trouble. 
And you and, you and I, if we can be honest, at times are not too different. Just the toys we snatch are a little different. The lies we tell are not so naive. And we don't sit on our brothers and sisters too often. Uh, in uh, 1954, um, William Golding uh, d- uh, wrote the book, became Nobel Prize winner for Lord of the Flies. The book um, tells the story of a group of school children that uh, the, the, I think it's their ship, their boat. Um, I did it in school, if you can remember that, if you kind of can wade through the trauma of high school English. Um, uh, these boys uh, were um, trapped on this island, and it's the story of them being on this island and, and eventually growing and turning on one another. And the, the kind of the play that um, William Golding is playing with is, is it the island that turns these boys selfish and barbaric? And what he really suggests, the story of the book really is, no, 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 the island doesn't make them this way. The island actually just gives these boys the opportunity for the strong to oppress the weak without consequence. Uh, District 9 is, is the other kind of film that is on the screen. District 9, I remember seeing it and walking out being kind of baffled because this was the first film that I had seen at least where aliens come to Earth and humans are the baddies that people are the villains. You know, prior to that Independence Day, it's always we're the good ones trying to protect. Rather, in District 9, what happens is refugee aliens come in poverty and humans get them addicted to cat food like drugs and perform experiments on them in order that they might get their more powerful energy sources and use their more powerful weaponry. And I just remember coming out and chatting to my mate and thinking, is that not exactly what would happen? Like, I just remember thinking, if this happened in real life, is that not what we would do to get that kind of technology? That there is... Film upon film, story upon story of the natural selfishness. In fact, someone once said, if you want to be confronted by human disparity, go on a road trip with young children. And you will be confronted not just with their selfishness and their sinfulness, but with your own. All of us. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. See the kind of zombie-like language there. Like the rest, we were by uh, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's that's judgment. But, but, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. And the whole tone of of the passage shifts and change. And in fact, the whole flavor of human history changes on this word, on this person. That this is what we once were, but God. But because of His great love for us, And notice the why. The why. Why does God do this? Why does God step in? Why is there this change? Why is there this reversal of the trajectory that we were heading? Why? It's not because we were good. It's not because, and I'm sorry for this, because you were beautiful. But because of His great love. That's it. That's all. And that is both difficult to hear and disarming. Sometimes this happens in relationships, particularly when people are kind of newly married or newly dating, and they kind of go, why do you love me? And I, you know, I remember being, my wife asking me this question, why do you love me? And it's a trap. It absolutely, 100% is a trap. And here's why. Because how do you answer that? Well, because, you know, you're really kind and selfless. And here's what she thinks. And rightfully so. Well, if that's why he loves me, what about those mornings that I'm not kind and selfless? Why? Because, you know, you're generous and compassionate. Well, what about those times when I'm not? What? Because, you know, you're beautiful and you make me a cup of coffee in the morning. Well, what about when I don't look great in those jeans? What about when my hands get so painful from arthritis that I can't make you a coffee anymore. And, and you see the problem here. Why do you love me? The only freedom is found in I love you because I love you. Because I have promised to love you. Because of the inclination of my heart because of the choice and decision and the actions that I have taken to promise to love you. Why has God saved you? Why has God, by His grace, worked? Because of His great love. That's it. 
not because of you, because of his great love. And not just why, but when. When does God step in? It is when we are dead. It is when we are in our kind of fleshly desires and followings. It is when we are at our worst. It is when we are throwing the tantrum in the shopping aisle that God goes, I want that child. And I want to love them. And I'm going to give myself up for them. And I will pay the ultimate price to make him into my family. Ezekiel 16 is possibly, I would argue, one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. It's also one of the most confronting chapters in the Bible. But in Ezekiel 16, it says this, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloth. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into an, the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by, and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said, live. And he goes on to talk about how he clothed and ordained and, and blessed and gave the finest food and the deepest wine. When did God choose to love you? When did God choose to save you? When you were at your worst. For Romans 5, 6, for at just the right time, while you were still powerless, Christ died for you. And the great thing about this is, is while you were powerless, while you were dead in your sin, and it means that God does not love someone you were not. And it means that He doesn't regret saving you when you stuff up, when you make mistakes, when you fall short, that that doesn't somehow surprise God. Sam Albury this Christmas said this, and I had to include it. He said, We weren't expecting, we weren't interested, we weren't involved, we didn't ask, we didn't deserve, we didn't help, we didn't even imagine. And yet, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. That we have been saved by God's mercy and God's grace alone. And if you don't know what those words mean, grace, uh, mercy simply means kind of in the simplest of forms. Mercy is the bad things that you do deserve, you don't receive. And grace is 
the good things you don't deserve, you do receive. Can we get grace up there as well, Richie? Thanks, mate. Or in other words, if you like anagrams, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is why the reformers had the motto, it is by faith alone we are saved, through Christ alone. That's it. By faith alone, through Christ alone. Ernest Gordon was a British uh, officer in World War II and he was captured by the Japanese and he was placed in uh, a prison of war camp called Death Railroad. After the war, he wrote this memoir called Through the Valley of... Um, Through the Valley of Kwai. I, I don't know quite how to say it. Kwai. Ernest Gordon tells of how in that camp where about every five kind of miles of the railway costs around 2,000 lives. That's about how many people died for every kind of five miles of the railway. It was atrocious. And what he says was, in that camp, it was the law of the jungle. You saw the worst of the worst. He says it was myself first and to, and to hell with everyone else. Everyone just, it was, you just look after yourself. People became more selfish, more hateful, more fearful. And in his memoirs, he tells the story of one day while they were working on the railway, they did the count for shovels and pickaxes at the end, and they were missing a shovel. And, you know the soldiers and the guards start getting really upset and aggressive because, you know, if someone has sneaked or stolen a shovel, they might use it to kind of dig out and escape. And so the guards start getting very aggressive and start pointing pistols and guards and beating prisoners and, and the kind of the captain of the guards yells out, I, I will kill every one of you in this squadron. And he kind of goes and, and points the pistol at, at this person's head. And Ernest Gordon tells the story of this man that he doesn't know from another regiment steps forward and says, I did it. I, I took it. And the guard goes over strikes him with his pistol and the man stands back up, bleeding from the head, chin raised, mouth silent. And the guard gets more and more angry and more and kind of more and more aggressive and beats this man to death. And then some and then some and then some till he is so exhausted that he can go on no longer. 
They march back to the camp. They place the shovels in the tray. And the guards recount and realize that they had simply miscounted the shovels. That there was never one missing. And Ernest Gordon tells of how in this place of absolute selfishness, through the death of this person who was innocent, how it just transformed, transformed the people that this man had died, had given his life for them. And, and you can ima- like imagine being one of those soldiers, right? You can't just continue in your selfishness after seeing a man do that in your place. And so too with us. This is why Paul says, this is why the reformers said, we are saved by faith alone, through Christ alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. Because if you believe this, if you have seen this one who shed his blood in your place, how can you ever be the same? How could Edward, after seeing Aslan take his place, continue on in his selfishness? Save not by good works, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. Literally, the word is poema, the word that we get our kind of English word poem from, artwork. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do, that you and I were once dead, we have been made alive, we are now seated at the right hand of the Father, and He has made us His artwork that we might do good works. We are not saved by our works, but to a very real degree we are saved for good works, which He has prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we give you great thanks and praise that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead in our sins, you worked out of your great love for us. We thank you that you are under no illusions about who we are or how messy and broken and selfish we can be. And yet you love us still. Think of, think of John Newton's final words and how he said, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. 
and that Christ is a great Savior. Lord, you are a great Savior. And we are great sinners. And yet you have worked to bring us to yourself, to make us alive, that we might go and love others and display your love to the world we live in. May we do that, we pray. Amen.